Hey everybody, uh, my name is Jeremy. Um, I'm not the, just a crazy stranger that showed up to speak. I was actually, I'm actually a crazy stranger that was invited to speak. So that's good news. Um, I've got to thank Joey in a huge way for giving me an opportunity to share with you uh, my heart this morning. Uh, things I've been praying over for a couple of weeks and also to thank you for having some grace with me as I try and deliver the message. Um, while you're running through your Bible or opening your electronic devices to John chapter 3 verse 16 and 17, um, I'd like to take a minute to introduce us, uh, my wife, Emily, and I. Um, Emily and I met at summer camp in 2010. Um, I was blown away, and I quickly chased her to the Panhandle in Florida, where she was going to school. Um, obviously, it took a little bit of convincing for her to go out with me, but I'm, you know, I, I go after that pretty hard, and eventually she, she, gave, she gave in. Um, at the time, God would have just called me out of a career um, in music education. I was teaching music for three years, and uh, he pulled me out of that, and there was a lot of new life. Um, new relationships, new places. I was I was going through a very interesting time, but God had used Emily in my life while we were dating. Um, even before either of us really were fully aware of what he was doing or, or really appreciated the value of the, the relationship that we had, uh, he was using her to teach me and to mend me. Um, I was walking around with a lot of brokenness. Um, brokenness I'm still kind of digging through as, as I look to be a pastor or a church planner, but I don't think I even realized at the time how broken I was until I got into this relationship and God started doing that. Um, God was surgically removing some things from my life that just didn't need to be there. He continues to do that, but it's more of a welcome surgery now than it was at that time. Um, my marriage pitch was basically, I know that I'm not sure how this works. I know I'm called to plant a church. I'm probably going to be a poor pastor, and I'm probably going to get beat up a lot emotionally and spiritually for the gospel. Will you marry me? Right? And she had she had no context for what that meant at the time, right? She she looked at me, and to be honest with you, I, I don't know that I had much context for that at the time either. But she knew she was called to be with me, and she said yes. Um, so our our relationship is absolutely a testament to the work of the gospel in our lives, our, our relationship with God, and also the fact that I have mad skills because she is beautiful. So we, we, we got this call. I was going through this call to plant a church, and it was a very interesting call because he called me in the youth pastorship at the same time. And, and that's confusing to me, right? Two separate calls in two different directions all at the same time. Um, he confirmed for me the youth pastor position in Georgia while we were still dating. I, I served there for a year, and then we got married in the middle of it. We spent another year there trying to figure out where in the world are we going to go. If you haven't noticed yet, right, I'm not from around here. If my speech pattern doesn't give it away now, I'll tell you all about it later. Um, and if you can't place it, right, it's not quite southern because it's not refined, right? I'm not, I'm not a southern belle or anything like that, but it's not, it's not, not northern at all. It's, it's West Virginia. We're kind of too far north to be south, too far south to be north, too far east to be west. We're just, we don't fit in, right? We kind of take the identity of wherever we're at, but we're very versatile people and we master the use of duct tape. So... <laughs> this, this call in my life was difficult because I knew one thing, I wasn't going home. I knew it was not going home, which was West Virginia. I grew up there. Emily's from Florida. Uh, she, she was born in Georgia, grew up in Florida, but we knew we weren't called there either. And we were both in Georgia sitting going, where, where in the world are you going to call us? Where are we going? And so through a, through a series of events and calls and people and opportunities and not opportunities, doors open and closed, God places us in the greater Boston area. And at the time, I wanted a beach. I'll be real with you. I wanted somewhere tropical, thinking nice, right? But he gave me a beach. Yeah, I'm about, a, I'm about 100 yards from the beach, but it's rocky and the water is always cold, right? I have never been into a place where you have to actually put more clothes on to go into the water. It doesn't make any sense to me, right? So it, 
through all that, right? God is, God is building this in me. And when we first got to Salem, I was like, nope, this is too hard. These people are insane, and I'm not going here. This is like, this, well, this is what I hear, right? The, Salem is the graveyard for pastors, right? Now, if you're already a pastor, that's intimidating. If you want to be one and you're not yet, that's even more intimidating. But God moved us into Salem. We got a house there. We got work there. He pushed us all the way through this in ways that I can't even begin to explain. I would love to tell you today that our landing in Salem and on the North Shore was my brainchild, and that I did it all on my own, and that I'm a genius. But judging from what you've heard me say so far, you know that's not true. And if you're not sure about it, my wife will confirm that for you. Right? I'm not a genius. God is awesome. He works. Today I want to talk to you about the gospel. The gospel of Jesus. Now, hear me carefully, right? This is the gospel of Jesus. Not the gospel of me, not the gospel of you, not the gospel of John or Mark or Matthew or Luke, but the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's only one. I need you to hear me very clearly this morning when I tell you this, because it's with great passion that I share with you that the only reason that this exists is because God loves you. That's the why. All wrapped up. If you hear nothing else that I say this morning, and I hope that you do, I hope you're listening, but if you hear nothing else that I say this morning, Hear that God loves you. Salem is a town full of amazing people. All of them need to be saved from something, but they do not know the Savior that you and I know. They don't know Him. They never met Him. They can't explain in their hearts what's going on. They can't explain this pool to, to need something greater than what they have, but they all know something is missing. And we're living it right now. I could go on and on about what God has done in our lives at this point um, in Salem or even when this crazy story all started. It probably take me about 10 hours, so I got 25 minutes. If you want to know more about it later, you can, you can ask me later, and I'll go all the way through it. But again, today my primary purpose is to talk to you about the gospel. So this is John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. God does this because He loves us. And not, not just God loves you, but look at what happens because God loves you. Right? The why is that God loves us. But the what is that He sends His Son. And the how that He saves you is through His Son, right? This is the most famous gospel presentation in all of Scripture with regards to what we've heard in our society. You hear this a lot, that Jesus loves you. And nobody can say it better than Jesus does. The Gospel is about who Jesus is, what He has done, what He is doing, and what He will do. He is the focal point of all of Scripture, and that's what the Gospel is about and how it works itself out in our lives. So I love the way that John talks about the Gospel of Christ. Every Gospel revelation in Scripture, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, has its own little niche, right? Matthew is the relational, the amiable one. You know, Mark's the concise to the point. Let's, let's move and transition together, right? Uh, uh, Luke is the analytical one. He likes to put together all the facts as a doctor and put it together. But John's the expressive one, right? And through, through language that I can only describe as fantastic, he presents to us, even from the beginning, this, this robust scriptural presentation that throws the philosophy of the Greek or Hellenistic culture on its head. Right? He tells us from the beginning that God was in the beginning. Jesus was there with him. John calls him the Word. Jesus is God. The Word was God. 
Jesus as truth and life was not only present at the moment of creation, but active in creation. Now, this is often overlooked because it's confusing, right? It's hard to wrap your mind around the idea of a person that's being described in any form of flesh, right, which is Jesus, being present at the moment of creation. But this is essential for you to understand the gospel because the gospel is about who Jesus is. Jesus is God. John starts right out with it. Everybody else kind of gives you, gives you a little lead up. I, you know, I'm going I'm to give you the genealogy and I'm going to tell you about his friends and his family. We're going to get into his ministry and the gradual revelation that he has. But John just rocks you right out right at the beginning with it. Right? And so when we get to chapter 3, he's already trying to establish that this is, this is my premise for all of my gospel. And this is what I want you to know, that Jesus is God. He is Lord. And if you can't get to that, right? If you can't look at that, and go, okay, I know who Jesus is, then the gospel for you will be diminished in some way because this hinges upon God's lordship, or Jesus' lordship. So wrap your mind around all this. The God of all creation has stepped into human history as a God-man in the flesh, Jesus Christ. And this is what John is saying is going to establish. This epic truth is staggering. It's staggering. Because if any of you all know the gospel story and how, how we usually portray it, Jesus dies in the end. Right? He sacrifices his life for you and for me to save us from sin. This is God we're talking about. This isn't just you and me going out and putting our life on the line. Ultimately, ultimately, we're, we're sentenced to death already. This is the God of the universe stepped in to do something about your sin when he talks about loving you and sending his son to save you. Also in John chapter 1, we see John the Baptist coming. A relentless passion for the fact that the kingdom of God is coming. Now most of us like to think of the kingdom of God solely as heaven in the future, right? That's where it's at, right? But Jesus initiated the beginning of the kingdom when he came. That's what John the Baptist is living in the wilderness, getting ready to proclaim to everybody. Repent, for the day of the Lord is at hand. The kingdom of God is coming. So the people are called to repent. And then John introduces them to the Jesus bringer. It starts out in his public ministry. God owns this. There's only one gospel. It can't be improved. right? It can't be altered in any way. And Jesus is at the heart of it. This is his plan, his story, and his way. And we beautifully get to be part of this. right? All right so I've been around here for about three weeks. I've been coming the past two weeks before this. right? Um, I'm still getting to know everybody, but is anybody else in here a control freak? Just like an absolute control freak. Anybody? I have to have control. I like things my way. Um, one of the biggest arguments my wife and I got into at the beginning of our marriage was where my bags go when I come in the door, right? I walk in the door, my bag goes here. It's been that way for 25 years. That's where the bag goes, right? And she tells me that's not where the bag goes. I'm like, no, this is where the bag goes. I'm not going to tell you the end of that story because I lost the conversation, but that, that's what happens. Do you, do you remember the Burger King ads, Have It Your Way? Anybody? Have It Your Way at Burger King, right? I think after I saw that ad... I ate there for like a year. I was like, yeah, my way, right? I would like, I would like a hamburger and I'd tell them my toppings and then, you know, a few minutes later, I, you know, order number whatever comes up and I'm here. And I had the burger my way. And I thought that was cool until I figured out they were funneling my choices through a series of prescribed options. I could only choose so much. So if I said I want two patties, they're like, no, you can't do that. Well, that's not my way. Right? So I did what any, you know, self-respecting fast food eater would do and I went to Taco Bell. There's also a place called Sheets. And I love that because you, you don't have to deal with the cashiers. You just walk in and you punch in your order into the screen. They, you go pay at the register, you call your number, and then you go get your food. And I can have that any way I want. But our culture 
is dedicated, our society is dedicated to giving us this overwhelming sense of choice in how we want things. It's this instant gratification that just plagues our ability to look at the gospel for what it is. There's something about having control for me that is very, very appealing. And it's only after you really look at it for what it is that that starts to startle you a little bit. Gosh, I have to have this my way. My bags have to go here. Right? Well, why do your bags have to go here? Why, why is this better than everything else? I think most of it's pride. I mean, that's what it's been for me. I, I mean, honestly, I just, to be real and frank with you, I think I can do it better. That's typically my thing. Right? I, whatever, whatever is happening, I can do it better. And there's a great deal of self-value that I find from my opinion being known and someone valuing my opinion, my way of doing things. We like to think that everything in the world is a system of control, a system of cause and effect where we do something to get something else. And we struggle when we finally realize that our decision is not the ultimate end of the universe that controls all of these things. That there are things that exist outside of our realm of influence and our realm of choice that actually do affect us profoundly. I knew a guy in college, we'll call him Steve. That's my stock name for every illustration, so if you start noticing Steve comes up a lot, then that's why. It's all the same dude, I just call him all Steve. Uh, you can thank Multiplicity for that later. But... Steve is OCD to the nth degree. He likes his control, right? His room is always clean. His, his work is always in on time. He never procrastinates. He's on time for work. His car is clean. Always. Whose car is clean? Always. Never. Right? You go into my car right now, it's like my car is still not clean, right? But, but Steve, and his, his need for control kind of spills over into, into other people's lives, right? At some point, you're like, Steve, my suit is fine. Put the lint roller down and step away. I don't want you to keep away from me, right? And I know that's funny, and that's okay, because Steve's OCD. And if you're, if you're OCD today, that's fine. I'm not telling you OCD is bad. But what I'm telling you is it's a, an illustration of the spiritual sense for our desire for control. But that desire for control wrecks us. In the Christian faith, it's not actually about control that brings you freedom and peace. It's about relinquishing it to the one who actually has control that brings you peace and allows you to be free to be free. There's no need to control it redefine it, shape it in a palatable way. Just to live and breathe it, to exist in it, to be there in grace and mercy that Jesus offers to you freely, of no volition of your own. You know one of the places where pride really starts to die? Marriage. Marriage. In my life, marriage has been the number one place where, where pride has died for me. I really did not understand how prideful and arrogant and boneheaded I was until I got married. I can't even begin to tell you how much control I had to relinquish just in a marriage relationship. I can't tell you how hard that was for me and how stupid I feel because it was hard. Everything from the bags to the dinners to anything was difficult for me to just get rid of the control. Now, why do I say all this? Why are we talking about control? Why don't we just go ahead and move to the gospel? I'm telling you this. If you can't get past your own pride, everything you view about the gospel is going to be tainted. Because it's going to affect the way you view who Jesus is. It's going to affect the way that you view how he does things. And I need for me, I need for me and I need for you, right, to get past this. Our pride has to begin to die. Our pride has to begin to die. So let's set up with chapter 3, right? In this chapter 3, uh, we see Jesus and Nicodemus, right? I'm going to call him Nick because I think that's what his mama called him, except when she was mad at him. His mom uses your whole name when she's angry with you, right? Jeremy, John Allen, get over here now. That's what she would do. Right? So Nick comes to Jesus and he says, listen, I want to know how to get eternal life. At this point in time, there was a huge debate 
among the Pharisees going on about whether there was life after, after death. Is there eternal life? You have a group of Sadducees that are like, no, it doesn't exist. And these guys are battling over, what does this mean? We need another revelation from God. We haven't had anything in 400 years. And so Jesus shows up on the scene preaching as somebody who has authority, the Scripture says. He's, he's doing miracles that, as, as though only that person with authority can do that. And so Nicodemus' mind is tweaked. He wants to know what's up. So he comes to him straight up asking. The Pharisees were the religious leaders at the time. A religion teaches you that you must give something so that God may bless you. You must give something so that God may bless you. This is the flawed system that Nick had to work with. Him and the boys were just choking on it. That's all they had was the law. They dedicated their entire lives to living the law. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Because it sounds familiar to me. I grew up in a church system where it's like you did the good things. You made the right decisions. And because of this righteousness, they would never say that you earned salvation. They would never say that. But our church culture functioned in such a way that we knew it was true, even though we wouldn't say it. And so God loves you is the first piece, right? God did this because he loves you. The second piece is you didn't do this. You couldn't. You couldn't. And that's what Jesus is trying to help Nicodemus unpacking here. Nick acknowledges that Jesus is sent from God. You couldn't do these things if you weren't. And we say, well, yeah, that's pretty common sense. But later on, Jesus has to rebuke the Pharisees because they were attributing his works to the devil. He's like, that doesn't make any sense. You're crazy. You should have known. He tells Nick, are you not a teacher? How do you not know these things? I cannot begin to teach you spiritually heavenly things if you won't even believe my earthly testimony. So he's setting Nick up for something huge. Again, John's pulling, pulling all the stops out to get to this one point. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I think Nicodemus earnestly wants to know the truth. I think he's relentlessly seeking it. He's the cream of the crop. He's the scholar. He's studied all of Scripture. He's been waiting for this Messiah figure that the Bible says is going to come to save their people. The problem is, he's short-sighted. He thinks the Messiah is going to come his way. He thinks the Messiah is going to come this certain pre-described way just to save Israel, but God has something way, way bigger in mind. He wants to save the entire world. I don't know about you, but like that's zealous. That's something that like, I can't even imagine trying to save the entire world. I mean, I can barely function inside of my marriage without screwing something up. I can't imagine. I mean, Jesus, Jesus worked the entire redemption of humankind at three miles an hour. No car, no internet, no Facebook, no Twitter. Can you imagine? And it boggles me. It, it boggles my mind why we're looking at it and having so much trouble, but then I realize there's that pride again. There's that control again. So I want to read this scripture again. Because Jesus is about to drop a bomb on Nicodemus, right? And chapter 3 is during their, in their conversation. And he tells them, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This was God's plan from the beginning. It's always been his plan. And he's always going to be, he's always been the person that's going to do it. This is God's way. God is having his way. And it's wonderful. So why? Instead of earning something, working to make ourselves worthy or entitled, God makes it 
this way only because He loves us. Our society has heard that phrase, Jesus loves you, so many times that they're starting to glaze over it because we're just not, we're not communicating to them why that is so huge and what comes from it. Can you imagine with me for a minute what it would take to earn our salvation? I mean, just practically, let's think about this for a second. What would it look like for me and for you to work hard enough to deserve eternal life? What in our minds makes us think that we can achieve this? What can we actually give to God that He would value enough to give us eternal life? Keep in mind, this is the creator of everything you've ever known, of all reality. What could you possibly give that being that would make him look at you and go, you know what, you're cool, come on in. And I think if we're being reasonable, since he's all-powerful, all-control, sovereign, can create anything he wants, that the answer to that question is nothing. There's not a thing you can give him. Not even your life. We'll let him let you in. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is where we rest. That God doesn't ask you for anything in order to give you eternal life. The only thing he says is, my son has done it for you. My son has done all the work for you. Now, to be honest, where I grew up as a man, sometimes this bothers me because I want to earn it. I want to feel like I'm entitled to it and that I deserve it. And so my pride here, again, is on the line. What am I going to do? So in this situation, I have one of two options. I can lay down my pride and say, listen, Jesus, it's me and you, and I got nothing. This is my moment of desperation. There is nothing that I can achieve. There is no way that I can be that's going to get you to give me eternal life. Something's got to be done, and I can't do it. And Jesus says, I did it already. I've been working on you already. I've revealed this to you already. I mean, not even the part where it tells us that if we believe that we say, Jesus tells us is even really us. There's a part in Scripture, Matthew 16, where Jesus comes to the disciples and says, what, who's, everybody, who's everybody say that I am? And, you know, the disciples rattle off some answers here and there. And he's, okay, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter, who's bold, like my favorite guy in Scripture for obvious reasons, because he's super bold, wants to get it, but it's always screwing up, and I can relate. He's like, well, you're the Messiah, the Son of God, right? Boom, Sunday school answer, I got my hand up, they're going to give me free donuts. That's how it works in church, right? And Jesus looks at him and goes, blessed are you, Peter. And if it were me, that's all I heard. I'd be like, yeah, blessed are me, right? But he says, because this has been revealed to you by God. I'm like, oh, come on. Even God gets the glory in this? Yep. God gets the glory in everything. He was working on you even before you decided, you know what, I'm going to follow Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. I believe everything that he says. I'm going to dedicate my life and give it to him. God was working on you even before that. Through the Holy Spirit, through other believers, we're all connected in this together. It's an amazing story. Did you know your testimony? Let me tell you your testimony. You were once dead, and now you're alive. That is your testimony. That's your testimony. Can you, can you, I can't, I can barely wrap my mind because I, I mean, I, I grew up in church. I was saved at a young age. I always really undervalued my testimony because it was this gradual move and not like this. I was going to, you know, do something awful to myself and God stepped in and saved me. But the reality is I was once dead in my sin and because of Jesus, I'm now alive. It's not about what I did. It's about what Jesus did. I keep saying that. I hope, I hope you're catching on to that, right? God loves you and Jesus has done this for you. 
Again, the gospel is about who Jesus is, what he has done, is doing, and will do. Not about what we have done. Not about what we're doing or what we will do. There's no reason to work on our salvation because God has already given it to us. I've noticed that there's some super, super fit people here. Like, I came here and I was like, man, these people are fit. Like, like ran here, like, this morning and then changed into something nice without sweating. Like, that kind of fit. Right? And, and, and so, you know, I also noticed that some of them did mixed martial arts and that made me happy. Uh, one guy even mentioned, he was like, you know what, if we were in a brawl, Restoration Road would feel pretty well, if you know what I'm saying, right? And I was like, man, home sweet home. That's, uh, that's my place, right? That's where I want to be. So we, but working on, working out and stuff, there's, there's a very cool cause and effect there that, that I, that I really enjoy, right? I can tell you that when I work out a certain way, my muscles do certain things. When I run a certain way or a certain period of time, my cardiovascular health improves. Or when I diet well, my body feels better and I'm healthier. And so we understand workouts, right? We understand diets or, or fill in the blank. Something you manipulate for positive cause and effect results for yourself, whatever you do. We love this because it's cause and effect. We do this and we get this. We like it because it feels good. We've earned it and that makes us happy. I, I struggled when I was fighting because it was, it was one of those things that I idolized because it was an area in my life where I had absolute control. You step into a ring with somebody and the only person you can blame for losing or winning is yourself. There ain't nobody else. And so I love that. I love the cause and effect. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that that's wrong. Taking care of your body and doing these things and the way that God has set up creation and you to work is amazing. It shows God's wisdom in doing this and it reveals the wisdom that he's imparted to you to take care of your stuff. So I'm not saying that's bad. But what I'm telling you is this is not the gospel. Sure, the gospel cause and effect, God did, and so therefore this. But not you did. It's not your cause and effect. It's not your cause and effect. The love of God is not something that can be earned by us. It's a righteousness freely given. It's a good standing with God that Jesus has given on our behalf. We become God's kids. right? You can't earn God's love because he loves you as much as he can already. Can you imagine what it would look like, say, you know, you're a young child, right? He's a three-year-old kid, and, and you're like, you're going to have to earn my love, right? I'm going to love you. In fact, you know what? I'm not even going to name you until you can contribute, right? When you, when you can earn something that I enjoy, I will give you a name and you will be my son. But until then, get to work, right? I mean, because let's be real. Apparently, I mean, I don't have kids, and so I can't say this, but it seems to me like they're poop and cry machines. That's what, that's what passes me off, right? Um, so I'm like, I don't know what I would do with that if I had one. Hopefully, I'll figure it out in the meantime. But then I'm going to need grace on that too, because anyway, that's a, that's, that's a rabbit trail. We'll stay away from that. But the point being is that your kids don't have to earn your love. Your kids never have to earn your love. They don't have to earn their food and their provision. So why do you think that your Heavenly Father would make you do that? Now, we can say with our mouths all we want that we believe in a God that loves and loves us anyway and that has provided our salvation for us. But what we do really reveals what we think. You can say what you want, but you live what you believe. And it's very obvious. And the crazy thing is, it may not be obvious to the people in the church because they're trying to play the same game, and so they're going to give you kudos. But the people outside the church are noticing. Now, here's the good news. They notice both. They're going to notice whenever you're living a life that doesn't proclaim the gospel, and they will notice when you are. Now, they're not going to tell you this. I wish it was that easy. Don't you wish you could go to like your normal leaving coworker and he'd give you like an evaluation of what he thought about you, like a real honest evaluation? Yeah, man, I saw the gospel in your life here, here, and here. Well, that day you did this, and you know, I don't think that really reveals the gospel. He ain't going to tell you. There's no reason for him to tell you. 
If he told me, I think he was a little bit nuts. Right? It's like being called to Salem. I tell, I, can I take a minute to soak up how nice it is to be able to share with you that God called me to move at Salem and you don't look at me like I'm absolutely nuts? Right? Because I tell people in Salem that and they're like, God told you to do what? Um, I'm going to plant a church. Why would you do that? And you know what? I'm not really sure. Uh, the gospel. What's the gospel? Uh, this is going to be hard, isn't it? We are servants of Jesus. I am a servant of Jesus. Bought by Jesus. Paid for by Jesus. Endowed by Jesus with the authority of Christ to be an agent of revelation, to speak the words of Jesus to the church and to others. We are set apart, ordained for this ministry. The ministry of reconciliation has been given to us to share to the world, right? Now, that's, that's one big job description. You notice in there that nowhere it says, you know what, you're responsible for your own salvation, and if you're not doing that junk right, I'm coming down with a hammer and maybe some lightning bolts, and we're going to talk, signed God, right? That's not how it works. It's, I am your father. I love you. I've given you this ministry so the whole world may know me. And I'm already doing work in you before you knew it, while you knew it, and in coming in the future. I'm doing work in the world before you knew it, while you know it, and coming in the future. God paved our way in Salem. He's paving your way in Wakefield. He's paving the way for his gospel to be known and for himself to have a relationship with the people who are here, whether you know it or not. And it is That doesn't set you on fire. The idea that an eternal God going before you and paving the way does not give you just an insane amount of courage. I honestly, I don't know what will. And I get the struggle, man. I totally, I get that struggle. Like I'm trying to plant a church and there's some days where I'm sitting in the morning doing my prayer time and asking God, be like, where were you yesterday? Like you went AWOL on me and just left me out to dry. Yeah, I know. We're not supposed to talk to God like that, but I do. I do. We talk a lot. I've hollered at him a couple of times, and he slapped me a couple of times. And we're, it's, it's a good working relationship that I have with him because he, he beats on me, and I take it and laugh. But uh, it's hard to do this. Don't make it harder. Don't make it harder. I'm begging you not to make it harder than it has to be. I'm begging you to lean into the relationship that, as a believer, you already have, even if you don't realize it. Jesus is your, Jesus is your God. God is your dad. It's an incredible thought if we would just wrap our minds around it. I love this quote by Rabbi Zacharias because it, it sums up so much of the, of the struggle that I'm trying um, to talk about. He says, The gospel addresses the fact that the human heart in its own pursuit will end up empty and lonely and destitute. And that destitute situation comes from being in a situation where in this body and in your mind, life does not ultimately bring you satisfaction. Why? Because it's violating the very purpose for which God has created you. He's created you and me for a relationship with Himself and for the sacred. God created you knowing His plan for redemption. God created you knowing that Jesus was going to be the way. Nothing surprises God. There's nothing part, there's no part of this story about the, the, the inauguration of the kingdom, the fact that Jesus is coming to complete the kingdom. There's no part of this where God was like, man, I did not see that coming. And he loves you so much. And I know you hear that, especially as a young person. Right? I know you hear that and you're like, yeah, 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 I know. I've heard that a hundred times. Listen, if you've heard it a hundred times, ask yourself why. Ask yourself when someone loves you and they do something, how much does that mean? 
But what I don't want you to walk away from this morning is walking around beating yourself up. And, and I, know, I know how I work, so I'm assuming that most people are like me in this regard. I'll go home and what am I going to do? Instead of leaning into Jesus and trusting my daddy, I'm going to go work on my pride. And I'm going to go work on my perspective. I'm going to go work on me. Because i got to be better if I'm one of you, Jesus. And Jesus is like, that's your takeaway on this? Like, that's what you got from reading what I did. And if I'm being honest, sometimes it's like, yeah, because I'm a moron. This is true. Paul reiterates in Ephesians 2 that we are saved by grace through faith, not by works. There's no mixture of your works and gospel that results in a good outcome. As a matter of fact, if I alter the gospel in any way, other than the gospel that comes into Scripture, that's no longer the gospel of Christ, that's the gospel of Jeremy. Paul was animate about what you do with people who bring you false gospels. It's like, kick them out, get rid of them. You have one gospel as told to you by Jesus Christ through his apostles. One. That's it. There's not two or seven. There's one. And this gospel starts and ends with the fact that Jesus loves you. He created you because he loves you. He sustains you in all of creation because he loves you. He redeems you because he loves you. He is in control and he does this. And so he sent Jesus. Let's finish with the scripture one more time as the guys make their way back up in the band and we prepare for communion. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. In closing, there are three things I really want you to look at. I want you to look at the why, the what, and the how. Why? God did this because He loves us. It's unfathomable why He loves us as much, or or the fact that He does love us as much. The what? Salvation is what Jesus came to bring us. We were condemned already, the next verse tells us. And desperately in need of something life-giving. Jesus, as not only the bringer of life, but the sustainer of life itself, came and gave us life. And then how? Jesus' sacrifice pays the debt for what is owed. He ushers in the beginning of the kingdom of God, and the Holy Spirit is actively at work in the hearts and the minds of believers to reveal the truth of God, calling us to repentance, and then transforming us, our hearts, our minds, all that we are, into something brand new. This is the message of the gospel, and this is barely scratching the surface of all that it means. Who is Jesus? Who do you say He is? What did He come to do, and what kind of an effect does that have on our lives if we truly believe it? If I truly believe that Jesus is my Savior, and I'm truly resting in that, then I have no need to live a good life or to work on my salvation. I have no need to rest in my own righteousness and my own works as a means of obtaining salvation. He's already done this work in me and He's going to continue to change me and things will come out that you will not even believe. That is the gospel we rest in. So if you go home today and man, you struggle with this, oh, you mean I don't have to do anything at all? to make my salvation better, that God already loves me, and you're struggling with that, let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. Like that's, I feel like that's one of the reasons why I want to be a pastor. I want, I want you to understand this. Because it's from this that everything else flows. Like that understanding that was given by God to Peter and to the rest of them. This is that understanding. Thank you again for letting me be here. We'll close this out in prayer, and then somebody's going to come up and, and do the, help us do the communion. I'll walk through that. Um, I love you all so much. I don't even know you yet, and I love you so much. I look at a spar with somebody soon. We'll get it. But thank you very much. Let's pray.